We're going to be covering a lot of scripture this morning, and so I encourage you to uh, feel free to follow along in your Bibles if you brought them, or there's Bibles here, or in our online sermon notes that you'll find at mygrace.church. Um, I, I encourage as you go through, um, most of what we're going to see is going to be up on the screen behind me. Most of the scripture references that are in your bulletin are, are going to be on the screen behind me, but I'm going to be paraphrasing some of it because we have a lot to cover. So, um, so the, the ones that we really want to focus on are going to be up on the screen. Okay. Pastor Dave said that he was going to be watching me this morning. I didn't... Uh, if, as long as he's still smiling, uh, I'm good. But if that changes, please let me know. Uh, for the last two weeks, we've been discussing no more running and no more masks, kind of our internal thoughts and actions in this series of fake book. Uh, but this morning, we're going to shift that, and we're going to talk more about how we interact with each other. Um, this morning, our focus is going to be on no more people-pleasing. And that might seem kind of a strange idea, What's wrong with pleasing other people? That's our big idea for this morning. When we focus on pleasing God rather than pleasing people, we will be blessed with confidence and authentic relationships. Again, we call this series Fake Book because in this age of social media, we are so connected to so many different people, but how real and authentic really are those relationships? We know that because if we post something on Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or Twitter. Um, I don't use most of those, but, um, but when we post something there, don't we quickly kind of look to see how many likes we get or how many people have viewed it, things like that. And if we're not getting much of those kind of affirmations, don't we begin to a little bit question ourselves? Oh, maybe they don't like me. Maybe they don't like what I wrote, etc. And in real life, when we have, we go to a meeting at work or we come from a church meeting, do we sometimes find ourselves being really frustrated or questioning ourselves because conversations didn't go well because of something that was said or something that was not said, all because we're trying to avoid awkward and difficult conversations? Our main scripture this morning is Proverbs 29, verse 25, that kind of addresses this. It says, the fear of human opinion disables. Trusting in God protects you from that. That's from the message. The fear of human opinion. It can be exhausting living this way, trying to please everyone around us just so that we're going to be accepted and liked, all the while stuffing down our feelings or our own values. This type of behavior is called being a people pleaser. So what is a people pleaser? Again, I mentioned it to someone about a week ago, and they said, that sounds like a good thing. I would like more people, I would like more Tim pleasers in my life, saying, what can we do for you, Tim? I would love to be surrounded by those people. But here, here's, there was an article in Psychology Today, October of 2012, it says, a people pleaser is one of the nicest and most helpful people you know. They never say no, and they spend a great deal of time doing things for other people, and so far this all sounds like a good thing. But unfortunately, it can be an extremely unhealthy type of behavior that has several negative key effects. I'm going to mention them. Neglecting oneself is a trait among people pleasers. They work so hard to please other people that they might take little care of their own spiritual health or emotional health or physical health. Number two, passive aggression or resentment. 
Our desire to be nice will suppress anger. And unexpressed anger can turn to passive aggression. We're being passive aggressive when we make real sharp comments or when we crack a sarcastic joke or when we kind of do one of these things as if we're whispering because it wouldn't be nice to say out loud, but in reality people hear what we're saying. These are forms of passive aggression. Do you know people that often might talk about other people behind their back because they don't want to have that awkward conversation to them and so they speak about people when they're not there. That's a form of passive aggression. And finally, the big one, stress and depression. The definition of stress is having more demands than you can handle. And I also have said the Bible verse, well, God won't give me more than I can handle. But God also gives us the wisdom to sometimes slow down a bit and sometimes to say no. And we have to exercise that, that choice at times. Otherwise... We spend so much time trying to please other people that it can lead to this vicious cycle of chronic stress and unhealthy behaviors. If you have this constant feeling that you're too busy to take care of things you need to do for you because you're so busy doing for other people, you might be stuck in that cycle of stress or it leads to depression. This article talks about people pleasers as being nice and when we were kids, we learned that word, nice. Our parents would say, be nice. Well, you went to school, you met someone, were they nice? In Bambi, some of you know where I'm going, Thumper, the little bunny, recalls what Thumper's mom said. If you can't say something nice, finish it. Don't say nothing at all. So being nice is a nice concept, it's not necessarily what God calls us to be. In fact, can you guess how many times the word nice is in your Bible? Zero. Zero times. Kindness is in there. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, of course, throughout. That's the Bible's message. Mercy, forgiveness, compassion. Not nice. Not once. It's not there. It's not the same thing as kindness, right? Seems similar. It's not. I, I looked this up. A nice person is one who conforms their behavior to what they believe society wants to see. A kind person doesn't care what society thinks. They're going to do what is best for their fellow human beings. That's kindness. Remember the story of Jesus and the woman at the well? Was Jesus being nice? No. Not really. He approaches this woman. He doesn't know her. He's, he's Jewish. He's a Hebrew man. She's Samaritan. And he begins telling her, she's got five husbands, ex-husbands. The guy she's with now is not her husband, and she's worshiping the false god. Is this nice? <laughs> no. He doesn't even know her. But is he kind? He speaks with love and encouragement. He points her to the one true God and says, I am, I am the way to that one true God. Tough conversation, but very authentic, right? This is the way that Jesus interacts with us. We don't have to be fake with Jesus. He doesn't want us to be that way. We can be real. But it's easier for Jesus than it is for us sometimes. We struggle with it. This is the problem with fear. It limits us our verse from this morning. Feeling afraid erodes our sense of being comfortable with who we are 
and the way God made us, and so we end up feeling inadequate or weak or powerless or just stuck. Uh, I'm on the foundations team here at Grace. It's basically a committee that meets with Pastor Dave, and then we discuss different topics and make decisions here at the church. I'm new to the team. Uh, Many people on the team have been on the team for years, and I will say these are very, very godly people that have been serving this team and serving this church for years. We spend a lot of time praying and a lot of time in Scripture. It is not a business meeting. It is more, more rooted in prayer and Scripture than at any church I've ever served at before. And yes, we are nice to each other. We're nice. It's easy. They're nice people. You may know the people on the foundation, Steve. They're nice people. But, um, but we, are, we are really focusing on being real with each other. And sometimes we disagree, and it can be awkward. And, but we're, we're united with this idea that we are children of God, and we've been called for this brief moment of time to serve this church and serve the Lord. And sometimes when we disagree, we have these robust discussions that can last for four hours. And, and that's our phrase, robust discussions. We're trying to be comfortable with robust discussions. We would appreciate your prayers. Um, but we're trying to be real with each other. And it's not as easy as nice, but that's what we're doing because we think that's what God calls us to do. Let's talk about someone else who was afraid of how people would think of him. Moses. Uh, when I was a kid, I saw the Ten Commandments movie. And there is Charlton Heston, the greatest Moses of all time. More Moses than Moses. Because... <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Later, he fought a whole planet of apes. Um, <clears throat> but, but he was just of this deep-rooted voice, and he always knew what to do and, and everything. That is not what the Bible tells us Moses was like. I'm in Exodus chapter 3, and I'll be reading uh, quickly through these verses and, and paraphrasing. Uh, with God's permission, I'll be paraphrasing what the Lord said, but I want Moses' verses up on the screen here. Moses was tending to the sheep, and he gets called uh, over because he, his attention gets drawn towards this bush that's on fire, but it's not getting burned up. And he's wondering what it is. This was God's idea. And he goes over, and God speaks to him from the bush, saying, I want you, Moses, to be my messenger. I've heard the cries of my people who are slaves in Egypt. I want you to go back to Egypt, from which you just fled, and go back to Pharaoh, from whom you have just fled, And I want you to tell Pharaoh to release my people from this free slavery, and I'm going to take them to the land of milk and honey. This is the plan. In in chapter 3, verse 11, Moses asks a fair question, I suppose. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God basically answers him, telling him, I will be with you. Tell them, I am with you. But Moses resists again with doubt. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, this is chapter 13, or verse 13, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel, not Pharaoh, but now the people he's about to rescue, and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they say to me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? And God answers that patiently for several verses, walking Moses through the entire plan. We don't always get to know the plan, but God is telling Moses the plan. And Moses is still afraid and doubting. Now in chapter 4, verse 1, Moses answers, 
and says, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. So God tries a different tactic now and says, I'm going to show you miracles that you're going to perform for the Pharaoh and it will be great. Moses was a shepherd. You notice how God always does this work with shepherds and sheep. It works perfect. And so Moses is holding his staff and God says, take the staff, the stick, throw it on the ground. Now it's a snake and reach for it. Now it's a stick. You're going to do these things in front of Pharaoh and they'll know that you can't do them. I can do them. You, they will know that I am with you. Moses is not so convinced. Verse 10, Moses says to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. He was quiet. He was a stutterer, some translate that as being. He's now explaining to God that he, Moses, is not up to the task. He's explaining to God how it works. Have you ever tried to do that in your own life? Where, can we call that God-splaining? this phrase lately. He's God-splaining. It's like, uh, you don't really know what you're dealing with. You chose wrong. No offense, God, but you chose the wrong person. Like he has to educate God on how things work down here. God is now quite angry. And finally, Moses just gets real and gives up and says in verse 13, please send someone else. He's just admitting with the pressures of the people he's going to talk to in the Pharaoh's castle or pyramid or whatever, and, and the Hebrew people, they won't believe me. They won't accept me. They won't like me. They won't follow me. God gets very angry at this point. And I don't want to embarrass Moses because Moses is up in heaven and Aaron, his brother, says, you know, they're talking about you down at Grace Community Church. And Moses is like, I thought I heard my name being mentioned. But God goes after Moses and, and rebukes him a bit for his lack of faith, his lack of trust. And he says, fine, I'm going to bring your brother Aaron. The two of you are going to get this done. I'm going to get this done. You're just my messengers. The Bible talks about the dangers of being a people pleaser in Luke chapter 6, verse 26, Luke wrote, uh, There's trouble ahead when you live only for the approval of others, saying what flatters them, doing what indulges them. That's from the message. I like that version. Instead, we need the attitude that King David had when he wrote in Psalm chapter, seven, verse, chapter 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? David gets it. This is awesome. Compare this to Moses' comments saying, what will everyone else think about me? David is not afraid of anything. He knows who he belongs to. I'm with God. Who am I going to fear? So how do we quit trying to please everyone and start pleasing God? How do we shift from acting like Moses did early? Moses got it and have more confidence. It starts with this trust in God. It starts with developing confidence. In fact, the word confidence comes from this Latin word, confidere. When I say something in Latin, I have to do this with my hand. I don't know why. I think it's like <laughs> Italian or something. Confidere. Con means with. Fidere is trust. Uh, it's where we get fidelity. With trust or reliance. Our confidence in these situations doesn't come from our personality type. 
we can be confident and still be an introvert. It doesn't matter if we're an introvert or an extrovert or a type A personality or a third child or uh, an otter or a lion or a, a Hufflepuff or a Gryffindor, all these personality tests, you know, an EMTJ if you've done the Myers-Briggs thing. Our confidence comes down to our relationship with God. That's where it comes from. In Galatians, Paul wrote to the church to remind them who they belong to and of what their purpose was. He challenged them in chapter 1, verse 10, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of God. He also spoke about trust when he reminded the church in Thessalonica, On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. He tests our hearts. Think about that for a second. We all say that we want to be real, that we want to be authentic. But until we're really ready to be honest about our struggles and our failures and our sin, it's going to hold us back. God loves it when we approach him this way. And if we don't do this and we keep playing games and we hide behind our feelings, we hide behind our masks, we're not going to grow. We're not going to grow deeper in our relationship with God and we're not going to be able to fulfill what God has designed for our lives. God calls to us, just like he called to Moses in the burning bush. And he says, be in a genuine relationship with me. I am with you. Again, David knew this well. Psalm chapter 118, verse 8. He wrote, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. He knew from a young age who he belonged to. Let me bridge this gap between Moses and the burning bush and David. We're going to talk about David for a moment. Uh, Moses and the burning bush happened. He did, through uh, the Lord did, rescue those Hebrew people, and they became the nation of Israel. Moses helped. And 330 30 years later, here's David, one of these Israelites, uh, the Hebrew people that have come through this time. And there's a story, we're going to go in Samuel chapters 16 and 17. Before David became a great king, he was simply a young shepherd boy. Okay? Again, the shepherds. Uh, the Lord sent a priest named Samuel to go and find someone who was going to be destined to be the new king of Israel, or at least at some point to be the king of Israel. They had a king, King Saul. He was a good king for a while. Um, he looked like a king. He was handsome. He, was, he came from a good family. He was tall. They say he was taller by a foot than everyone else, but he had become disobedient towards God. And so God knew at some point, I'm going to replace Saul with someone. And he sent Samuel, who was a judge and a priest, go to Bethlehem and you're going to go find a man named Jesse. And Jesse has eight sons. Go and find Jesse and one of his sons is going to be the one I will have chosen. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem. He goes, he finds Jesse and he says, present to me your sons. And so Jesse, very proud now, realizing perhaps that this, this important person has come, and, and so he begins presenting his sons, and he, he shows his oldest son. Everything was about the firstborn son back then. And Samuel just knows this is not the one that God has chosen. And Jesse's like, that's okay. I got another one. And he walks through all the sons saying, how about this one? How about this one? 
And each time there's something that Samuel is thinking, thinking, this is not the one God's chosen either. And Jesse gets through all of his sons there, and Samuel's like, none of these guys are the guy. None of these ones are the ones that I can tell God has chosen me to, to anoint, to designate for a special purpose. And he turns back to Jesse and he says, are these all your sons? And Jesse says, basically, yeah. Except I got David, my teenager. He's a shepherd. He's out in the field. And Samuel thinks, okay, maybe this is it. And he says, go get him. I'll stand here until you go get him. And so young David arrives. Scripture says that he is, uh, has red hair. He has handsome features, but he is still the baby of the family, far too young to be considered for anything special. He's the grunt. He's, he's, he's the one, the errand boy. But Samuel instantly knows this is the one, so he anoints him with oil, which is a way of saying that God has chosen him for a special purpose. God had the secret plan, of course, that David was going to be something, even though no one around David knew he was going to be anything. From that day on, the Spirit of God was with David. David goes back to being a shepherd boy. And see, it doesn't matter that David was young. It doesn't matter that he was insignificant in his family and to everyone who knew him. It doesn't matter that no one thought he had any potential. And it's okay if you don't fully know what God has in store for your life. It's okay if people around you have not necessarily thought of you as someone who's been called to this great higher purpose. Because you're not trying to please them. You're trying to please God. So David has now been anointed by Samuel. And he's living out his life as a shepherd. In the meantime, there is an enormous battle that has begun to take place between the Israelites and the Philistines. The Israelites were God's people, and the Philistines were their greatest enemy, and they gathered their forces on the tops of two hillsides with a valley below. And during this, the idea of this great battle is, back in those times, each army would send their mightiest warrior down into the valley, and then they would fight. And whoever would win the fight would win that battle. In the Israelites' corner, guess who was the tallest man? King Saul. Remember, I'd mentioned he's a foot taller than everyone else. He's the leader. He's the king. Probably doesn't want to be a soldier, but that's what he is. He's the tallest guy there. And who's the tallest guy on the Philistine side? Do you know his name? Goliath. The Bible says he is over nine feet tall. Tallest person I've ever been around is uh, I was around Andre the Giant one time. I was walking into a hotel. He was coming out of a hotel and he was trying to get in a limo and he could not get in the limo. Truly, I felt at first uh, very afraid just because it's unusual to see someone so big. People think I'm big. Big. He's big. He's seven foot five and he couldn't get into the limo because he couldn't figure out does he go in this way or back in, etc. It was sad. It was amazing to see. Um, he would have been short compared to Goliath. Goliath was over nine feet tall. That's probably nine feet. Goliath, they say, uh, nine feet tall. He wore a helmet and armor that weighed 125 pounds. He was the top guy there. Um, so for 40 days, these two armies on these two hillsides were kind of at a stalemate because no one wanted to fight Goliath. 
right? Understandable. And so each day Goliath would come to the top of the hillside and he would shout down against the Israelites and he would mock them and he would curse their God, our God. And he would defy them. Who will come fight me? And no one would come. In fact, when he would speak, it would so terrify them that the Israelite, uh, Israeli soldiers would just run away. And during this time period, uh, Jesse, the one with eight sons, um, three of his oldest boys were in this army up on this hillside. And Jesse was worried about his boys in battle. And so he calls young David, the errand boy, the shepherd, and says, here, pack some food, go see your older brothers, give them the food, find out how it's going, and come back and tell me what's going on. And so David goes off to do this. He's the errand boy. No one thinks much of him. But David has the Spirit of God with him. And David has grown strong, and he's kind of brave. He's a shepherd. He has to protect his sheep from wolves and other creatures that might attack. So David goes, he gives his food to his three older brothers and begins talking with them. And he keeps hearing Mr. Big Mouth, Goliath, taunting not only the soldiers, but their God. And David starts asking questions. What's going on? Who's dealing with this? Who's going to fight Goliath? Uh, and, and they say, what are we going to do? Who are we going to fight him? And David keeps persisting, asking these questions. At one point, David's older brother doesn't like that the younger, pesky brother is asking all these questions, like he's so high and mighty. And the older brother teases him and says, why have you even come down here? And who's watching your sheep? Why don't you get out of here and quit questioning us? But David so much keeps asking that he ends up in King Saul's tent. And he's saying to King Saul, are you going to deal with this or am I? How about I go fight Goliath? And King Saul says, Samuel chapter 17, 1 Samuel, uh, verse 33, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. Because David's discounted all the time. No one thinks much of him. But David persists, and finally Saul's like, go ahead. We would say these days, it's your funeral. You go fight him. Fine. So David gets ready, like a shepherd does when he's getting ready to go out into the pastures and the mountains. He grabs the thing a shepherd would grab. He grabs his staff, his big stick. He grabs five river rocks and a sling. He's a shepherd going to work. He starts running down the side of the valley and Goliath sees someone is approaching. Goliath starts running down the side of the valley. They're both running towards each other and the trash talking starts. Um, Goliath hates this young red-headed boy who dares to fight him, a giant. And Goliath says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks, with that staff? And Goliath then steps over the line and starts cursing God and threatening what he's going to do to this Israel army. David comes back with his own trash talk, showing no signs of fear. He says, you come against me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, I assume he's screaming at this point, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I will strike you down and I will cut your head off. This guy, David, he's a teenager and he's saying this. Both are running down the hill towards each other and David reaches into his bag and he grabs a rock and he hurls it at Goliath and it sticks in his forehead like a bullet would and Goliath hits the ground, face down, dead. 
And David, since he didn't have a sword, and he promised, made a promise to Goliath, takes the, the sword from Goliath out of the sheath, cuts his head off, and he holds up his big dumb giant head uh, apart from his big giant body and shows it to the Israelites, this is what God has done. God has enabled us. At, at that point, the battle pretty much ended. Um, how does this story relate to us? Obviously, many of us are not going to be in a battle. We're not going to fight a giant. But the story tells us about a person who had been around people all of his life that had said, you just go over here and do this. And if he had been a people pleaser, he would have pleased those people and done just what they told him to do. They had been who he would have been who they wanted him to be. But instead, he's not trying to please them. He's trying to please God. He knew that God was with him. He knew who he belonged to. The lesson for us is we can't follow God's plan if we're so busy trying to please everyone around us. Can you imagine how rested and relaxed and at peace you would feel? How much happier you would feel if you didn't have to worry about faking it all the time? What if you lived in total honesty with your family? What if you had people in your life whom you could tell anything to without really being afraid of what they might think? What if you really believed that God loved you no matter what, no matter what you did? Because whatever you did, God sent his son Jesus to fix it. What if you really felt free to love other people with that same type of love? If you've ever been a parent or can remember back to your childhood days, imagine the anxiety that parents have when they send their children off to school or, or, or some event. They're hoping, okay, this child has been under my care and guidance and protection, and now this child is going to go and be around dozens of other people that are going to influence this child. Is my child going to still be the person whom I brought them up to be? Are they going to make good choices? I think everyone probably has that feeling. Jeanette, my wife Jeanette, would always say the same phrase to our kids when she was dropping them off at school or Cub Scouts or Girl Scouts or practice. She'd say, remember who you are or remember who you belong to. And we had told them, they belong to God. We are caretakers, Jeanette and I. They belong to God and... I wonder what's on the next page. And that they needed to keep that in mind whenever they're out there in the world because they're going to face situations that might compromise their values because they want to be popular and accepted. Last week, Pastor Dave talked about how we fake our emotions at times and we put on these masks, these smiley, friendly masks trying to please people around us. But that is fake and that's not how God sees us. God sees right through our masks and knows exactly who we are because he created us and loves us despite our sins. In fact, God filled the Bible with these statements, with these promises of how he sees us. So we're going to go through a list together, a short list. And when the word comes up on the screen, let's all say that word together out loud, okay? We're going to show different words up on the screen of how God sees us. Ready? I'm ready. The first word, accepted. That's how God sees us. So we say accepted. The next word? Blessed. 
Next word. Feel free to read them as you see them up on the screen. Chosen, Chosen. right. Complete. Complete. Forgiven. Forgiven. Use that one last week. Holy. Redeemed. Righteous. Saint. This is the entire message of the Bible. Loved. That is how God sees us. Wouldn't it be great if we knew this is how God sees us? Wouldn't it be great if this is how we came to see ourselves? Other people may not think that we are all these things, but they don't know what God knows. The fact that this is how the Lord sees us, and the Lord is the one we're trying to please, should make us like David where we're not afraid of anything, and we can begin being so much more real and authentic. We've just begun our season of Lent, and Lent is a time period where we have 40 days leading up to Easter, that is used to draw us closer to God. And oftentimes God would use a time period of 40 days as a time of transformation for us. So when we go out into this world and interact with others, let's be transformed by God's love for us, and then let's speak from that love to other people. Let's be real and confident with the knowledge of who we belong to. Uh, let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for all the blessings that you've given us. Thank you for seeing who we are and for loving us despite our fears, despite our failures, our faults, our struggles. We ask, Lord, this morning that you help us to see what you see in us, that we begin to think of ourselves the way that you think of us so that we can treat each other with love. Work in our hearts, Lord. Work on our history, Lord, that we can leave that behind and not care of how we may think of ourselves, but only you. In your name we pray, amen. Let's take just a moment to consider our next steps um, with these questions up on the screen, and you can use this time to think about how you can apply this to your life. And if you'd like to take communion, we'll have people in the back that can serve you during this time.